Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Mid-Major Madness podcast. My name is Russ Steinberg. I know we just talked to you guys yesterday, but I wanted to come back and do a really quick podcast here. We had a story run on the site on Monday that got a lot of traction, and I thought it would make a lot of sense to have the writer of the story on the podcast just to talk a little bit about his process in uh, putting all of this together, uh, maybe shed some light on some questions you might have, that sort of thing. Uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, be sure to head to midmajormadness.com and give it a look. We published 171 contracts from current college basketball head coaches. We have a few more that we are still hoping to get, but we have it all up on the side, a nice table showing uh, salaries, bonuses, length of the deal, and then in many cases, a link to the contract itself. Uh, John Templin has been working on this uh, like a crazy person, really all summer, uh, sending out freedom of information requests, compiling all of this, making it all readable. Uh, He's done just hours and hours and hours of work. So I wanted to talk to him about it, about why it's important and all that. So hope you enjoy our conversation. First, just to get us started for people who may have not, may not have read the entire thing. What What's the process that you went through to get all of these contracts and why were you able to actually obtain and share so many of them? Sure. So, um, for, so obviously there, there are two types of uh, universities in, college, in the college basketball universe. There's private schools uh, that are most, a lot of them are religious schools, for instance, and then there are public universities that are run by the state. And every university that's run by the state, you can use state Freedom of Information Act laws to get um, information about how that school is run. And one of the things that you can get are contracts. And it turns out that every college basketball head coach has a contract. And so we went about requesting 171 of them. We filed 171 requests. And we got back almost all of them. We got back 83%, 149. And we were able to release all those because they're public record. And so we're really excited about the fact that you can now read about any coach contract that you'd like to read. Yeah. So now, you know, we have, we have it up on the site. We have them all in a nice handy Google Doc, So you could view the contracts. You could just look at the docs. If you just want to see their base pay or notable bonuses and all of that. Um, why, you know, I, I asked you to, to help me with this way back early in the summer. You just took the reins and went with it. And did way more work than uh, than I ever could have asked. Uh, tell me why this is important for a college basketball fan to be able to have access to, and why it was worth going through this sort of effort. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting to understand like the business of college basketball, uh, and also like the reason that mid-major schools, in particular, are mid-majors is because their budgets aren't the same as some of the like North Carolinas or. Dukes are the bigger schools in college basketball, and they have to work with constrained resources. And these contracts kind of show us some of those resource constraints. They show us what the expectations are for schools in terms of, like, the bonuses that they're giving out. It's really interesting to me, for instance, some of the schools that do offer bonuses to their head coach for, for instance, like an appearance in the CIT versus coaches that uh, don't receive anything unless they're playing in the NIT or the NCAA tournament even. And it also, like, tells you how much they're going to pay their assistant coaches because that's bargained by the head coach uh, before he even gets to 
the you know getting to hire them. For instance, at Western Illinois, they have to play an extra buy game every other year so that they can fund their director of basketball operations position, which I just thought was really interesting. And so, like, these contracts give that information. And the other thing that they'll be really valuable for come April is buyouts and, and understanding, like, how coach contracts uh, work if somebody wants to hire them in a bigger school, wants to, you know, snap up with a smaller fish in the pond. And that even happens uh, between schools in the mid-major level, right? We're seeing that when, for instance, like New Mexico in the Mountain West hires, um, oh, what's Weir, uh, no, what's Weir's name? Sorry, let me see. Paul, Paul, Paul Weir. Weir. Yeah, when, when uh, New Mexico hires Paul Weir from New Mexico State, I mean, they gave him a lot of incentives to come across the state. And so it was really interesting to see that contract. And I think as, like, the season goes on, that will be valuable for people. And one of the things we did include in the spreadsheet is when officially the contract ends. So you can also find out, like, oh, this is a lame duck year for a coach, or maybe this is a year where the buyout might be much less. Do do we often see coaches playing in the final year of a contract? Because I feel like you hear about guys getting either extended all the time or fired before they reach that point. Yeah, a lot of the contracts uh, are extended before then, and I also think a lot of these contracts will probably get uh, extended in season. But we do have a number of coaches that are having their contract end sometime in 2020. Uh, I'm just, like, quickly skimming the spreadsheet now. And, for instance, Cliff Ellis at Coastal Carolina has a contract that expires in 2020. Uh, Robert McCollum at Florida A&M does. And there's, there's a bunch more. Uh, Georgia Southern, Mark Byington. So there are definitely coaches who, you know, they could be up for extensions if their teams do well, or they could be, you know, they could be lame ducks this this season. Now, let's say, you know, we'll use Coastal Carolina as an example. They get off to a good start this year. Cliff Ellis wants to keep coaching, and they do extend him. Would would we then want to submit another FOIA request to Coastal Carolina and get a new contract, or is this just like in the current contract he has now over a longer period of time? Yeah, um, so it depends. I mean, we do have some of the extensions in our data set because, uh, when a contract is just amended to for an extension instead of uh, com- like completely changed wholesale, then uh, schools were very willing to give us both the contract and the amendments, which was great. And so it would really depend on how Coastal Carolina wanted to structure it, but we'd probably have to request at least the extension because he'd probably get some change in pay and maybe there are some other negotiable things such as like your bonuses or how much you pay assistance. So I feel like they would probably work on those. Gotcha. But in terms of bonuses, were there any that you were surprised to see that maybe you didn't know existed or that were just structured kind of in a funny way to you? Because I know we were kind of laughing about some of those as we were preparing to publish this. I mean, I think one of the best ones is the fact that Ron Sanchez at Charlotte doesn't even have to beat the Power Five teams. He just has to convince them to come play at Charlotte, and he can get a bonus for – two times, twice every season for getting those. And I thought that was great. I mean, that's $5,000 just for convincing a school to come play you. Uh, so that was a really interesting one. Uh, there's also, uh, we mentioned Paul Weir earlier, but he's also getting reimbursed uh, the cost of tuition fees and books for finishing his PhD at New Mexico State. I assume that's because he was being paid that as part of his uh, compensation when he was originally at New Mexico State, and so New Mexico offered to just continue doing that, although I don't know for sure. Um, and 
I also think it's very interesting that Ben Jacobson uh, and Northern Iowa team have his contract uh, renegotiated if he finds out he's not one of the top three highest state coaches in terms of guaranteed salary in the Missouri Valley. So, like, that's a real nice uh, piece of incentive there. Yeah, that, that's a great one for, for Jacobson especially because I think he's been at his school long enough that he is established as a really good mid-major coach. He's established as one of the – kind of mainstays in the Valley. And this is a way to make sure that his pay is always um, comparable to his peers uh, in in a way that reflects that. Yeah. I think it's also Northern Iowa basically committing to the program and to their coach who's been successful there. Right. So it's a really kind of like a nice mutual benefit, I feel like for the school and the coach at that point. And I, I know, we had a, a laugh over um, who was it uh, at UMass uh, that contract that was it right? Oh yeah, I mean there's a really yeah. interesting like so a lot of these contracts have bonuses for beating teams and they're usually rivalry games right they're usually right. you know if you are in New Mexico and you take out New Mexico State or or well, probably actually the other way around right because it's usually the smaller school if you beat the bigger school. Um, for instance, that's a really funny one. Um, but also, uh, so there are two really great ones. One is that uh, on September 1st, uh, the or September, well, I think it's actually September 15th. But September 15th, the UMass Athletic Director has to pick five schools for Matt McCall. And if he beats any of them during the season, he gets a $2,500 bonus. Which is really, which is really interesting. It's like these are the most important games on our schedule, and that's a good one. And also, I thought it was really interesting that Kent State's Rob Senderoff he gets five thousand dollar bonuses for beating either Cincinnati, Dayton, Memphis, UConn, or VCU in a season, but he doesn't play this year. I mean, those are not teams like those are not Kent State's natural geographic rivals. Right. They're not like teams they play on a regular basis, and it's just weird that they're in the contract. It- is it those schools like plus power five opponents or just those schools specifically? Cause that's really weird. I believe I will check right now, but I believe that it is just those schools specifically. That's, I, I would love to know how they came up with that. Like, I, I mean, yeah, it would be been, great to know how they came yeah. up with that list. That's, that's amazing. Now, if you, I'm looking at UMass's schedule for this year, just, just for fun. And I'm wondering if I were the AD, at UMass, would I want these games to be the five toughest ones on the schedule, or would it be like a couple of high-profile A10 games, and then maybe you want you want them to beat Harvard because that's a good in-state opponent, or maybe knock off Rutgers because that's a Power Five team that maybe you could beat. Like I, I wonder what kind of uh, thought process goes into that. Yeah, I think it'll be. I mean, we're going to try and figure that out in the future, but I think it'll be really interesting to see what the answer is eventually. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I want to know in general, because you've looked over so many of these, 171, is that what it was? You, you've looked over so many of these. Are there any kind of general trends you see in pretty much how all of these contracts are structured? Um, yeah. Is there like, yeah. I mean, there are definitely a lot of, things that are, are commonplace that we kind of left out of the analysis and, and the article. Um, in, in particular, even though we don't highlight it, academics are in almost every coach's contract in some shape or form, uh, mm-hmm. whether it's, you know, a GPA that keeps the team eligible or, 
a uh, APR that allows the team to continue playing in the postseason. Um, and also, there are minimum APRs that need to be hit in order for, and just so people know, APR is the academic progress rate, which is the uh, score that the NCAA uses to evaluate if you're graduating players on time, for instance, um, and you aren't kicking people out of your program. So a lot of those are used to trigger bonuses for coaches and also for, um, you know, just to make sure, like, the programs stay eligible, and that's uh, definitely something that a coach has. Also, almost every coach has, uh, you know, a clause where the school can fire him for cause if he's caught uh, with violations. Uh, and, and every school, almost every coach has bonuses around being named coach of the year in their conference. So that's obviously a big deal and, and something that it, sometimes the media votes on. So it's like good to know that that exists out there. And I think that there are a lot of, uh, um, almost every coach also has a uh, phone and uh, automobile allowance. And, I mean, that makes sense because coaches are on the road so much when recruiting and things like that and also calling and, and needing to communicate. But it's, it's interesting to see those all codified in contracts. Yeah, uh, and I, I think in some of these cases what, what we see is a base pay number that, you know, but sure, it's high, but it's not mind-blowing. But then you look at, what they get also in appearances, and that really, you know, jacks their salary way up. Can you talk about what the appearance fee means and what kind of how that's built into these contracts? Yeah, I mean, that's a very common way at the higher levels of college basketball to uh, raise the contract value without saying the base pay is that high. And that's important if you're trying to game the system when you're a public university, right? Uh, right. and, and it also means that part of that salary is probably coming from a different place. Uh, for instance, like the school is paying the base pay and then the athletic supporters group is paying the other piece. And so, like, it comes out of different uh, buckets in terms of just how the money is allocated by the school. Um, and so you'll see often uh, larger universities have an appearance fee or just something called supplemental compensation, uh, which isn't even – um, you know, require you don't you're not even required to do anything to get it. It's just extra mm-hmm. money that they're going to give you in your contract, but it's not being paid at base salary, so they can count it differently in, in terms of like taxes. But for instance, at UNLV, TJ Altsberger, he gets he has a three hundred fifty thousand dollar base pay, which is pretty high, but not like that high. But then he also receives uh, three hundred seventy five thousand dollars for making media appearances, basically like their weekly television and radio shows. And then he receives another $375,000 a year for his name, image, and likeness. So that's so they can promote him and they can put him on, like, the tickets or they can, you know, have him on a program or they can, they can talk about him as a great part of the school. And, I mean, that's an extra, um, you know, $750,000. Uh, so, yeah. And, and yeah, so, like, I mean, when you total all that up, he's got – about $1.1 million in guaranteed compensation to start out with, right? And that seems a lot bigger than $350,000. Right. So but you, you, you mentioned this, and I, I'm not sure that even I completely understand. What's the advantage to only being able to say that he makes, that his base pay is $350,000? Uh, I think it's an accounting thing in terms of how okay. it works with the school. Like, they want to say, they want to tell the NCAA, yeah, our coach is based base pay is this, and then 
you know, this, the school gives that much, and then usually it's like the athletic department supporters fund or something like that is paying the, the other fund. Gotcha. Um, and gotcha. also, we see a lot in the Mountain West, the coaches having, like, LLCs or separate corporations where some of this money gets passed to. Uh, for instance, like, if you read the Steve Alford contract at Nevada, it uh, it includes uh, Steve Alford LLC, which is, like, a separate corporate entity that he is a part of uh, that actually receives part of the cash that he's getting for the contract. And, again, that's, like, an accounting and taxation thing. Right. Right, that that makes sense. Um, you know, we, we were talk, talking about bonuses, and a lot of this is stuff you would expect, right? Like being named Coach of the Year, you get a bonus. Win game of the NCAA tournament, whatever. One thing that I think we found in a lot of these that maybe I didn't expect to see so much was coaches' bonuses being tied to attendance. Uh, is, is that something that kind of surprised you? And how, how did those bonuses tend to look? Yeah, I mean, I thought attendance bonuses are really interesting. I, I figured there would be some because part of this is a business, and, and part of that business is getting people to come out to your game. And a lot of the bonuses will only get hit if you're successful, right? For right. instance, um, at Missouri State, they are supposed to draw 8,000 people before Dana Ford gets a bonus. And, and 8,000 people is a lot of people from Missouri State. Uh, for instance, they only drew, like, 5,500 uh, last year, according to the NCAA's attendance report. But, like, some of the other places, for instance, like uh, Winthrop, Pat Kelsey has probably the most unique attendance bonus, where he gets a dollar for each men's home basketball ticket sold above 11151 in a season. And that bonus is capped at $10,000. And it's good that it's capped at $10,000, because Winthrop has been really successful, and they have great home attendance. In fact, uh, the NCAA says that they had more than 25,000 people attend their games last year. So, uh, obviously, he's doing a good job bringing people in and, and earning that money. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, One of the things I was really surprised, though, by was the student attendance incentives, for instance, um, which I didn't expect to see at all. Uh, but, like, for instance, Utah Valley's Mark Madsen gets a bonus if more than 3,000 students attend a game. Yeah, that- that's interesting, and I, I wonder if I, I wonder how you would get student attendance numbers, uh, at least from, from our perspective, because I would be curious how close Utah Valley has come uh, to that. Yeah, I, I mean, you yeah. probably could request that. I assume that it's tabulated by the school because they need it for his coaching contract, so they are probably figuring that out each game, and you could probably ask for it. Yeah. Um, is there anything else from this whole kind of experience that, that you wanted to bring up? I mean, this is something that has gotten a lot of traction today, so I'm sure people are going to have questions, but anything else on your mind? Yeah, I mean, one of the big questions um, I had going into this is how well this would work, uh, because FOIA is a notoriously, like, difficult and annoying process. Um, even though it can be very valuable uh, for reporters. And I was really honestly pleasantly surprised by how it went for us. Uh, we had to file all of these, so we wrote basically a letter that uh, started out as a form letter but, you know, was manipulated a little bit as we went from state to state because states have slightly different rules. And we were able to get way more contracts than I expected we would be able to get. Uh, getting almost 150 was great. And it's kind of frustrating 
the places that we didn't get them because most of them, uh, for instance, we highlighted the 22 schools that didn't give it, didn't give us their contract that we thought we could get them from. And most of them are schools in either Alabama or Arkansas where public records just don't let us request them. And because we're not, we don't live in those states. And so it would be great if somebody could help us out with that. And then I, it was really interesting to me in the few cases that a school, especially in Delaware, both Delaware and Delaware State, claimed to us that they don't use public funds to pay their coaches, and so they aren't required to release the information via FOIA. And we didn't fight them in that case because Delaware is a complicated FOIA state, but I would have wished that we could have gotten those contracts as well. So that, that doesn't seem like something they should – be able to argue, though, that does it because these coaches are employed by a public university. Right. Uh, that is definitely the argument we would make if we went and appealed. And um, we have appealed some of these FOIA requests, right? We, yeah. in, in particular, Central Connecticut State University uh, originally told us that because of their union, their union laws, they couldn't give us the contract for Danielle Marshall. And we appealed that to the State Connecticut FOIA Board, and they actually helped us get it resolved. And we did receive that contract right before our article went to press, so that was great. Um, I hope that we can do that in some other places, too, and get some more of these contracts and, and show some more people, like, and show more of the schools what's happening at those schools. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I will say to anyone who might be listening, if you live in Alabama and Arkansas, yeah, I mean, those are the two big yeah. ones. Yeah, for sure. If if you live in one of those states and you want to help us out, please uh, get in touch uh, either via Twitter or um, or email. Our information is on uh, on the website. Uh, that would be a huge help. Or if you know of any other way to get information for maybe a coach at a private school or just someone else that we haven't been able to get along the way, this is, I think, very much a document that we're going to want to keep um, as up-to-date as we can. Yeah, and I think, like, one of the things we hope to do is, is look more at the private schools, and while I doubt we'll be able to get contracts, we may be able to get some information, for instance, from their 990s that these schools file, where they have to list their highest-paid employees, and often the college basketball coach is one of them. So we hope we'll have some more information to add to this in the future and some more stories that come out of it. Yeah, um, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, John, for, for your time here and for all of the hours that you poured into this. Uh, I, I know it, it took a lot out of you, but I think it's I think it's paid off. Yeah, I think it's a really great resource, and I hope everyone gets to use it. All right, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Russ. All right, everybody, thank you so much for listening to the Mid-Major Madness podcast, and thank you again to John for not only taking the time here today, but for working so hard on this all summer long and helping make uh, what I think is a really, really valuable resource for fans, for writers, for anybody interested in college athletics, and especially the business side. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation. And just a reminder, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to the podcast wherever it is that you get your podcast. We are there. Rate and review us. It really does help us out. And we will be back with your regularly scheduled programming pretty soon. Hopefully we'll have another podcast for you up by next week. Until then, uh, enjoy the start of the college basketball season.